Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 and following. I am more and more amazed at our political situation. I know I keep saying this every week. Simply because we have an entirely new definition, it seems, as if what it means to be bold. You know, and and in our political scenario, it seems as if boldness has reacted to political speak. But much like the Princess Bride, I don't think that word means what we think it means. There is a whole different uh, definition of boldness that the Bible gives to us. Too often, Christians, I believe, fall into the trap of living passive lives. Uh, In many ways, we have seen the picture of Jesus, meek and mild, as the picture that we think we're supposed to emulate. And as I said last week, I do not believe meekness is the opposite of boldness. Rather, I believe meekness is boldness under control. Boldness submitted to the will and purpose and plan of God the Father. I don't see in Jesus uh, someone who is not bold. Turning over the tables in the temple. Speaking to the religious authorities. Even the cross we're going to see today, to me, is a sign of not weakness, but unbelievable boldness. Many passages speak of us living bold lives. In Acts 4.13, it talks about Peter and John before the religious leaders. I've kind of used this as a key verse of this series, that when they saw them, they didn't see educated guys. They didn't see powerful guys. They didn't see guys from the right family. But what they saw were they were amazed at their boldness. And it caused them to perceive that these guys had been with Jesus. I mean, think about that. A boldness that comes on us that should point the world not to us, but to him. Hebrews 13.6 says... So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? A boldness that comes on us to live lives of boldness. And that's really what I want to talk about today, living a life of boldness. We've seen how we've been given a bold message to declare, the cross of Christ from John 3. We've seen that we're to live in a bold obedience to God, not an obedience that says... um, Oh, you know, when we think of obedience, we think of the rules, what I can and can't do. But a boldness that comes and says, obedience to Christ is to turn from the direction we're going, to repent, to live and love boldly, to forgive boldly, to share our faith boldly. That's what it means to obey. Today, I want to look at this passage from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 and 12. By the way, I want to cue you up. I'm giving you a preview of an upcoming series Uh, I think I'm going to preach next through 2 Corinthians, uh, following the Easter season. I want to follow up our message on 1 Corinthians I did a couple of years ago. 
by preaching through 2 Corinthians. So I'm giving you a little bit of taste of what we're going to be looking at at the days ahead in 2 Corinthians. But in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 and 12, it says this, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Look up here for just a second. Look at me. Um, When he says, since then, what he's referring to, the passages right before this, and we'll talk about it in the series on 2 Corinthians, he's referring to the the throne that we come before to give an account. He's saying there's going to be a day when all of us are going to come before the throne of God to give an account of our works, what we've done. We'll talk about the implications of that later on uh, when we get to 2 Corinthians, that study. But he's keying off of that. Since then, I've got to give an account of everything I've ever done before God, which I know makes some of us fear and tremble right now. Don't get too hung up on that for the moment. Again, we'll come back to it. But it's Paul's premise to say, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Listen, think about it. If you know you're going to stand before the Lord and give an account of everything you've ever done, do you not have kind of a little bit of fear of the Lord? As a result, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in your heart. This is the premise for Paul's telling us how to live a bold life. We're going to give an account. I don't want to take pride in myself. I want to take pride in him, and as a result, when you look at me, you take pride in me, not to be proud in me, but to be proud of Christ in me and his work in me. And he's going to then go on to say, what does it mean to live an incredibly bold life in him? In August of 1977, the spaceship Voyager 2 was launched into space. Launched in 77. By 1985, eight years later, it had traveled 2 billion miles. At 49,000 miles an hour, it passes by and takes pictures of the planet Uranus. And it sends back uh, pictures over the next 20 days uh, showing seven new moons that had never even been discovered before. It eventually passes by Neptune. The first pictures of Neptune uh, are sent back to Earth. Mere months later, and and during this time, we celebrated. For those who were alive during that winter of 85, we celebrated the incredible feats that man was doing. We're going to space. We're seeing planets that have never been seen before. On January 28th, 1986, just a month later, after the celebration of man's incredible achievements, The space shuttle Challenger is launched, and within the first two minutes of the launch, it explodes because heating tiles fell off, sending seven astronauts on board to their death. We have amusement parks that are built around, and they're probably in almost every major city. Thrill seekers ride, engineering wonders, seem to fly out of control and yet are supposedly safer than driving your car. In July 2013 at Six Flags Over Texas, 52-year-old Rosa Ayala Guayana Esperanza 
expressed concern to park workers that she didn't feel that the safety bar in her car had sufficiently closed before the ride took off, but they dismissed her worries. Her daughter said that early in the ride, she looked behind to see her mother's head on the floor and her feet in the air, and a few minutes later, she saw her mother's entire body fly out of the car, falling 75 feet to her death. By the way, statistics, and I know statistics can be manipulated, but you're more likely to die or be injured at an amusement park ride than be bitten by a shark, struck by lightning, or even during your lifetime being shot by a firearm discharge. Of course, you never want to die or get hurt at an amusement park. Don't go. On January 29th, this is me, the morning of January 29th. Dang, I look good. (laughs) That's me skiing the morning of January 29th. Uh, I'm holding Jared's GoPro camera, uh, so I felt confident enough to ski and hold a camera. This is the afternoon of January 29th. Uh, The camera, Jared's GoPro, Jared is my son. His GoPro camera is now on him. Uh, This is what he came up on. By the way, going back uphill to get a ski is not as easy as it might look. How bad are we hurting? Hey, can you lift it up? Yeah, you're good. These examples to me make a common point. We think we're in control, but we're not in control. I mean, we have this illusion of control. Modern science, technology, the seeming endless capacity of the human mind, a world filled with rich resources, our own pride, our own abilities to do and not do. We think there's no limit to what we can do, and yet every so often something happens that points out out to us that we have limits. All of us have limits. The problem is we think that we are limitless in and of ourselves. And in some way, if we're not careful, our understanding of the Bible and Christianity may tend to point us in a direction that God's not leading us. 
as a church and as individual Christians, we read the Bible, we study it, we seek God's wisdom uh, to enable us to understand him. We become zealous or enthusiastic as he uses us. And, And as a church, we build each other in faith, up in faith. We lead others to Christ. Soon it appears that we can do anything as God's servant, but then something happens where we fail either as a church or as an individual. We don't understand what happened. We thought it was God's will, and yet circumstances make us doubt if it really was or if we could even hear from God at all. Things were in control, and now they seem out of control. Even in serving God, we can easily forget that it's God who's in control and not us. See, here's the way I think most of us think. We want to we wanna control everything that we can, right? We want to control everything that we can. And then we want to know that someone bigger than us is in control of the things we can't control. But then in turn, we want to control the one who's in control. So that ultimately, we feel like we're totally in control. Problem is, when we come against the truth that we are not the ones in control, but that he is, sometimes we react in ways that are inappropriate. In our powerlessness, and I'm using this in the sense of trying to control everything. I'm not trying to say you don't have power of God indwelling you. We'll, we'll see that truth later. But it's still about him and his presence that's in us. It's not about what we can do. It's about what he can do in us and through us. But in our powerlessness, many times we react in ways that we shouldn't. I mean, think about a guy who uh, feels powerless at work. His boss is often telling him what to do, controlling him, boxing him in. So one day he just tells his boss to take this job and you know what? A woman feels powerless in her marriage. Her husband is a tyrant. So she quits. She leaves. She files for divorce. She has an affair just to feel like she has some sort of control over her life. A teenager feels powerless at home and resents his parents' authority and control. So he rebels by doing drugs, getting involved in sex, joining the army, something just to prove his independence. And he's going to get out. Yeah, you'll think about that later. I'm going to escape authority and control by going this direction. One of the reasons I believe we don't live bold lives is because we have this illusion of trying to maintain control over our lives. Yet, the truth of the gospel, the table of the Lord, what it tells us is this. When we relinquish control to God by giving and receiving Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of our lives, it frees us up to not to have to maintain control. Do you know how much time you spend trying to keep control over your life when you can't do it? Think of how much freedom. We just say, I want to lift my hand. I can reach heaven. Why? Because of freedom. But then as soon as we leave this place, what are you going to do? I'm going to snatch control back to me. 
I'm going to control my life. I'm going to control my husband. I'm going to control my children. I'm going to control my circumstances. It's killing you. It's killing us. When God says, I want, to live you, I want you to live a bold life by giving me control of your life. Listen, we are not powerless in this sense. We are not victims. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We are, we are a brother to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We understand that our attitude will not be one of frustration and anger, but of peace and joy and confidence. Think about this. By all appearances, Jesus hanging from a cross, he would seem to be the least powerful guy in all of Palestine at that moment. He had been arrested, beaten, tried, convicted, sentenced to death, stripped of his clothing, brutally nailed to a cross. Naked, bleeding, exposed to the elements, completely at the mercy of the Roman soldiers who were guarding him. And he had no army, no military power, no friends in high places. He had no money, no land to offer in exchange for his freedom. All of his followers had deserted him. At that moment, he lacked control even over his own movement. He couldn't wipe the sweat from his forehead or brush away the flies that buzzed around his open wounds. He couldn't raise his hands to protect himself from the things that were thrown at him. He couldn't get a drink. Can you imagine anyone more powerless or more lacking in control than Jesus at this moment? And yet at that very moment, Jesus Christ was the most powerful man in the world. In spite of how it appeared, he wasn't at the mercy of anyone. On the contrary, they were at his mercy. And it was only because of his mercy that they weren't destroyed. I mean, it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on that cross. It was his own love for us. God wants to get us to grow to the point where we live bold lives. So here are the points I want to give to you. I know that was a long introduction to get to these points, but I really, I really want us to see that for many of us, for many of us, the prevailing issue in our lives is control. We are control freaks. Some of us are passive-aggressive control freaks. Some of us are aggressive control freaks. Some of us are just jerks, but we are control freaks. We want to maintain control of our lives. How are we going to live a life boldly by giving God control? Here's the points I think Paul says in this passage. Number one, lose your mind. Lose your mind. Verses 13 and 14 says, and I'm 2 Corinthians 5 again, if we are out of our mind... It's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Christ's love compels us. It means controls. Christ's love controls us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. 
that Paul's been, Paul is always being accused of being crazy. So finally, he just embraces it. I mean, at some point, he just embraces it. Hey, if I'm out of my mind, it's for the sake of Christ. It is for him. I'm out of my mind for the glory of God. And by the way, anytime I'm in my right mind, it's just so that I can talk to you. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. If I'm in my right mind, it's just because I need to communicate with you. Otherwise, I'm, I'm crazy for God. D.L. Moody was a successful businessman before, a very successful businessman, before he quit his job to teach at Sunday school, become an evangelist. It was so crazy to people that they actually called him Crazy Moody for quitting his job to become an evangelist. That was before he became the most influential evangelist of his generation. When I say lose your mind, by the way, I'm not talking about becoming terminally stupid. I'm not talking about not using the intellect that God has given you. I'm just, I believe Paul is saying, by mind, I'm relinquishing control of my life. The mind is the center of control. I'm losing control of my life to God. Because now Christ's love controls me. It compels me. Jesus, I, I got to believe Jesus was the most brilliant man ever. I mean, I, you know, we could argue about was Je- did Jesus have the highest? I, I don't know, but he was smart, right? We'll go with that. And yet he says, I can only say what I hear the Father saying. In other words, I'm not doing this on my own. I'm speaking to you what I hear the Father speaking to me. If Jesus is going to walk in that way, how much more do we need to? A couple of passages from 1 Corinthians that we look back in our study on 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Again, you're not going to get saved by becoming smarter. Hello? Philosophy, the study of the wisdom of man, is not going to eventually give you meaning in life. I wish I could talk to every high school student. I wish I could somehow get in the mind of every high school student, every college student right now who are going to be faced with this worldview that says if you want to become something, then you have to embrace this, the study of truth. What is truth? The study of how to achieve. And again, I'm not opposed to, you, to us studying those things and becoming, but they don't give us life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, when I came to you, brothers, again, the church in Corinth, but this is an earlier time, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. To live a bold life, it ultimately means that Jesus Christ controls us. 
every area of our lives, especially our minds. Our minds need to be controlled by him. By the way, I'm not even going to go into this, but what are you putting in your mind on a continual basis? What are you feeding your mind? Again, I pray that you're doing our Bible readings. Not just for the sake of legalistically checking off a box that says I'm reading through the Bible, but I believe if no word from God is without power, put the word of power in your mind. If you want it to control you. All right, second point. Change your perspective. Change your perspective. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 5 says this, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Some of us need to underline that. How do you, how do you regard people? When you look at somebody, when you come across somebody's path, when you're looking at the person in the row in front of you or the row behind you, how do you regard them? He even goes on and says, Though once we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Paul's, I believe, saying we need a change of perspective in how we regard people, in how we view people. We live in a society that regards people, judges people by externals. It, it, it has become out of control. Just go look at social media. I mean, everything is about the external, what we look like, how tall we are, how much we weigh, what clothes. I, I don't know... Yeah, if you watch the Academy Awards at all, in any form or fashion, but there are hours spent before the show analyzing what people are wearing. Tons of time. Hours. It is ludicrous. It is crazy. And yet, I can't help myself. But watch who was wearing the worst and who was wearing the best. I read those stupid articles. I punch it. Oh, I wonder who looked really bad last night. It's addicting. It's something a part of our sin nature, I think, that says we want to regard. I want to see how others are doing. And the only thing I can judge by is externals. A number of years ago, a number of years ago, I was given this watch as a gift. It's a Swiss Army watch. It's still my favorite watch I've ever had. Shortly thereafter, my brother and I went over. We went on a mission trip to Ireland, England. I, I know that's tough. We also went to Albania. When we came back through Ireland, uh, we were in a store, and there were these shoes that were like the weirdest-looking shoes I've ever seen. And my brother was telling me how comfortable they were. Um, they're called Doc Martens, which then became kind of a big deal, but I'd never, I'd never seen them before. They had the yellow stitching on them, and they had this really thick sole that I, I just had never seen anything like them, but I bought a pair. Came back like two months later. I went to do a college retreat for Birmingham Southern. And so I was wearing my Swiss Army watch. My, and one of the people at the thing came up to me and said, I have never seen a pastor dress as cool as you dress. <laughs> and there, I was like, huh? Swiss Army watch, Doc Martens. Now, I've been accused of a lot of things in my life. 
but being cool is not one of them, <laughs> ever. If I'm ever in, it's because I'm accidentally in. Listen, no one wants to be out, right? Unless they want to be out so they can be in. I mean, think about it. But God's in is not based on externals. Being in with God is based solely on your relationship with Jesus Christ. We've got to change our perspective of people and view them as God does. And again, we're all guilty of falling into this trap. Paul gives us an important key. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. See, Paul is saying he once viewed Jesus Christ from an external worldly point of view. Many within the church still view Jesus from an external point of view. In other words, they know about his teachings. His moral teachings. They know that some bad men killed him. They know that maybe there was a real person by the name of Jesus. That he was a great man and that his teachings are worth applying to your life. People, these are externals. You need to know Jesus. Not just know about Jesus or know the teachings of Jesus or know facts about Jesus. You need to know him in a real intimate relationship. To be his disciple is to follow after him. And Paul is saying, I used to, I used to know Jesus from an external point of view, knowing about him. And that's when he was persecuting the church. But then Paul says, when I knew him, it changed my perspective. I was able to relinquish control of my life to him, the lordship of Jesus Christ. The question is, who's calling the shots in your life? We can't see others properly if we don't first see Jesus properly. In other words, I can tell you, hey, you really need to love people. But you know what? You get a loving tolerance of people apart from Jesus. Some of you will do better than others because you're just built that way. Some of us won't do it hardly at all. Only through Jesus and his love compelling us can we regard people in a different light. And that's because, what, the old has gone, the new has come. You are new in him. Third point, and we'll talk about this more in the days ahead in a couple of weeks, be his representative so we've got to lose our mind, we've got to change our perspective, and when we do, then we can represent him to the world around us. Here are these key verses, some of my favorites from 2 Corinthians. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he is committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are his, and therefore we represent him, we represent him here 
to the point that God is making his appeal to the world through us. He's entrusted us with the same ministry that Jesus had, the ministry of revealing the Father and reconciling mankind to the Father. Now, we throw this word reconciling around a lot in church. Reconciling, that's bringing together God and man. We're bringing together God and man. But the word literally means to change thoroughly. To change thoroughly. So, think about this. God has reconciled us to himself. Change thoroughly. Who needs to change thoroughly? God or us? The ministry of reconciliation is that we hand, hold out an all-knowing, all-holy, perfect, loving God to the world around us and say, come to him. Come to him. He goes on and says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled, be changed thoroughly to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what reconciliation looks like. We are called to be his representatives, to be his ambassadors. So think about this in this whole control issue. We lose our minds, meaning we give them control of our minds. We change our perspective so that we view people as God views them. We love them. Everybody out there who you're going to, the jerk who cuts you off as you leave the parking lot, made in the image of God. Speak a blessing over them. Pray for them. Start to see people as God sees people, not as you see them. Who's in, who's out. And then be his representative. In the Roman world, there were two different kinds of provinces. There was what was known as a senatorial province, which was an area where, which willingly submitted to the control of Rome. And so they could send senators to represent them. And then there were what called the imperial provinces. The imperial provinces were the provinces that had been conquered by Rome. The ones that were always looking for a way to rebel. They had to be kept under control. Rome would then send ambassadors or representatives from Rome to these imperial provinces to maintain control over them. The senatorial provinces, they didn't need ambassadors because they were working together. Paul's picture here is that the world is is an imperial province. It's at war with God. But we have been sent by God as his ambassadors with all the full rights and privileges to represent him to the world around us in order to hopefully bring them to peace with God. What prevents us from living bold lives right now? Fear? Pride? If you think about it, fear and pride, 
they've got the same core issue that's control. I'm afraid I can't control this, so I'm afraid. Pride says I can control it. We need to relinquish control to God in order to live lives that glorify Him. I mean, this sees very a lot of different angles. Pride, unteachable spirit, religion, the cares of the world, perfectionism, lack of faith, envy, condemnation. We could go on and on about things that could keep us from living bold lives. I want to encourage you to submit to the will and control of the Father. In the early 1700s, there lived a man in New England who died at the age of 29. Of his 29 years, only eight of them were lived as a follower of Jesus Christ. He got saved at the age of 21. During those years, those eight years of his 29, he constantly struggled with illness and depression and loneliness. He was expelled from Yale for being too zealous for God. His dreams were shattered when he was expelled. He struggled with external hardships. He became a missionary to the Native American tribes around the region, and yet he struggled greatly to love the very people he was sent to be a missionary to. And yet, with all his struggles, he pursued holiness and prayer, praying up to six times a day, as well as fasting, studying God's word, and proclaiming the gospel to the people around him. His name was David Brainerd, and he died at the home of his friend Jonathan Edwards as a result of tuberculosis at the age of 29. Edwards found Brainerd's diary, which he had kept since he had been saved, and he published it, he edited it, and he published it in 1749 under the title The Life of Brainerd, and it has never been out of print since then. John Wesley says this about the life of Brainerd. He said, let every preacher read carefully over the life of Brainerd. Henry Martin said, pursuing the life of Brainerd, his soul was filled with the holy emulation of that extraordinary man, and after deep consideration and fervent prayer, he was at length fixed in a resolution to imitate his example. Brainerd's diary, as it's called by many, impacted the lives of William Carey, Robert Murray McShane. By the way, he's the guy who designed the Bible reading you're doing. He was a Scottish preacher. Brainerd's diary influenced John Mills of America, Frederick Schwartz of Germany, David Livingston of England, Andrew Murray of South Africa, and Jim Elliott of the modern American mission movement. Why? Because in his short life, he lived a life of boldness for his Savior. See, it's not about the length of time you have on this earth. It's not about the comfort you have. I mean, if you really lead it, look at his life, those eight years of being a follower of Jesus Christ, he suffered greatly. He suffered with himself. He suffered with illness. He suffered with conditions. And yet, his life is an everlasting impact for the glory of God and the kingdom of God because he chose to live a life of boldness for Christ. He said this. This is part of his diary. He said, when I enjoy, really enjoy God, 
I fell my desires of him the more insatiable and my thirstings after holiness the more unquenchable. Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. Oh, this pleasing pain. It makes my soul press after God. Oh, that I might not loiter on my heavenly journey. If we don't get serious about the issue of control in our lives, if we don't stand up and start acting like God's children, if we don't live a life controlled by our spirit, by the spirit, excuse me, we're wasting our lives. We are wasting our time here. It's a great irony of life. By trying to control our lives, we actually waste our lives. But when we lose control of him, and live for his glory, we make an everlasting impact. My question to you is this. Do you want to live a life of boldness and influence? Or would you rather live a life of comfort and ease and control? Father, I pray this morning that by the Spirit of God, you would help us realize the truth that we, as your children, are called to live lives of boldness. I pray that, Lord, we would give control of our minds to you, the way we think, what we feel, who we are in you. Lord, I pray that we would change our perspective so that we would view other people as you view them. We would even view ourselves as you view us, that we are your children. And Lord, that wherever we go today, at every moment of every day, that we would live to represent you, seeing the world reconciled to you, changed thoroughly for you. Oh, God, help us. Help us break the spirit of control. Break the lie of the enemy. And instead, may the truth of God, the grace of God, the lordship of Christ prevail in our lives. Lord, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we leave, we're going to worship God through the giving of...